start planning your dream garden with the help of the Garden Trellis Company. For more than 30 years, we've been making beautifully crafted joinery for the garden. The RHS-endorsed range of top-quality joinery includes trellis and slatted panels, fencing, gates, planters, stores and more for people who want to make the best of their outdoor space. The products are made in our Essex workshop from responsibly sourced timber, and with each order, we plant a new tree. Get 15% off RHS-endorsed Prestige products at the Garden Trellis Company when you order online or by phone with code RHSPODCAST. Visit gardentrellis.co.uk to find out more and order. If you could travel back through time, where and when would you visit? You learn from history not to make the same mistakes again, <laughs> where things have gone wrong in the past. Some of the best garden plants, I think, is quite interesting how they arose, and by chance, generally speaking. It's amazing how quickly history gets lost and confused, and we forget things that are sort of taken for granted. So I think it's important to try and uncover the truth before it's too late to see any trace of what went before. Hello, it's me, Gareth. And as you may have guessed, today we're journeying back through time, taking stock of a few significant moments in botanical history. We'll be unravelling their mysteries, considering their reverberations, and imagining what this all might mean for the future. Helping to guide us through these epic plant chronicles is none other than James Armitage, the RHS botanist and editor of both the Plant Review and the Orchid Review. Hello, James. Hello, Gareth. Lovely to see you. So, James, the concept of this show was your idea. Why exactly were you keen to turn back the clock today and look into these plant histories? Well, since I became interested in gardening, which is a long time ago now, I've always seen gardens as kind of living museums and the things in them as like emblems of a time and also of a place. And plants live in a very different temporal scale to, to us. Um, so the oldest plant on earth is a, is a pine, Pinus longiva, that grows high up in the mountains of East California, very harsh conditions. And it's about 5,000 years old. So it was around and thriving and growing at the time the Great Pyramid of Giza was being built. So as sort of witnesses to history, they're rather supreme. And it's not just long-lived plants like trees, it's also cuttings from shrubs and perennials and bulbs and things like that that get passed down the generations, sort of like the laying on of hands down the generations. And you can do a sort of degrees of separation game where you go, I got this from such and such and they got it from so and so and they got it from this horticultural luminary like EA Bowles or whoever. I love that idea of plants kind of being almost like our guardians and kind of seeing civilizations rise and fall and and in a smaller scale like generations pass like you say like plants that could be passed between grandparents and grandchildren and that plant maybe it's been propagated by cutting so that plant is genetically the same but it's survived for hundreds of years i, I love that idea and as they move through our societies and our cultures they accumulate stories around mm. them well, let's get to it then. In today's show, we're exploring a few histories from the December issue of The Plant Review. James, in a sentence, what is The Plant Review? The Plant Review is the RHS's quarterly magazine devoted entirely to plants and their stories. And first up, the first flowering of a giant water lily in cultivation. 
We're then chatting about how Midwinter Fire gave Corner Sanguinea a whole new reputation. And finally, we're taking a look at the life and legacy of Arthur Bully, founder of Nest Botanic Gardens. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, James Armitage. And me, Gareth Richards. So James, what story are we starting with? Well, there was one article from the upcoming December issue of the Plant Review that helped um, set this whole episode in motion, and that's the accession of Victoria by author and RHS committee member Phil Clayton. You heard him at the top of the episode read his opening line, if you could travel back through time, where and when would you visit? Which has become, in my mind, the overarching question for this whole show. So I thought, to start with, we'd get Phil's answer to that question. My own choice would be in what is now an overlooked, unremarkable estate yard, about a mile from Chatsworth in Derbyshire, but it was once the location of the estate's 12-acre kitchen garden. I'd turn the clock back to November 1849 and witness a key part of a wonderful saga that helped define an era, a tale featuring some of the most famed horticulturists of the age, and one that's still providing us all with surprises today, the first flowering and cultivation of a giant water lily. So the story of the first flowering of a giant water lily in cultivation really begins at the beginning of the 19th century in Bolivia. In 1801, um, a Czech botanist called Thaddeus Haneke, I think that's how you say his name, he was part of a Spanish expedition there. He was the first person from the West to see giant water lilies. Now we know that there's three different species now, but this was the first anyone had ever seen of it. And the plants he saw have been identified recently as Victoria Boliviana, which is, although it was the first one to be seen, it's actually the most recent to be classified. It's a bit of an odd story, but that's how it worked out. And the plant was so remarkable with its huge leaves, they were nearly three metres across, that it was immediately a kind of sensation, really. People were fascinated by the tales coming back from South America. So if you've never seen a giant water lily, they are probably one of the most remarkable of all plants. The leaves are enormous. They are up to three metres across. So they're like rafts, basically. And they're glossy green. Sometimes the undersides are red uh, and covered in thorns. The veins that run out and, and form the leaf pad are covered in prickly thorns, but that's underneath. And they grow very, very quickly. So they'll, they'll develop from seed into an enormous plant with, I don't know how many pads, probably 20 pads, maybe more, within a year. Some, some species are quicker growing than others. So Victoria Amazonica is a little bit slower than her two siblings, Cruziana and the new Boliviana. But they're, they're fairly similar to, to look at. You can't mistake them. There's nothing remotely like them. They look like a, an ordinary water lily, but on steroids. I mean, they're, they're incredible. And then the flowers are the other thing to, to mention. So the flowers come out, they're again, huge, multi-petaled uh, flowers. They open white, and then there's a strange choreography with the flower. So it opens and closes, it's to do with pollination. And when it closes and then reopens the next night, because they flower at night, they've changed color from white to pink. For a long time, they tried to no avail to introduce the plant into cultivation. And it wasn't until 
1849, February 1849, when some more seeds arrived to Kew from Georgetown of we now know Victoria Amazonica, and they were seeds that had been sent over in files of water, and they germinated really successfully. So they'd arrived, the first consignment arrived in February, and then by April, there were six healthy seedlings growing, growing away really well. So finally, they had these, these plants. And even then, they realized that it was, it's foolish to keep all your eggs in one basket. So they decided to distribute some of these plants. Q kept three plants. One plant went just across the Thames to Sion, which is the home of the Duke of Northumberland, who was very keen on horticulture. He just built an enormous conservatory, which is still there. And he was fascinated by all, all plants. But the other plant, went most famously to the Duke of Devonshire at Chatsworth. So the race was on to try and get this plant to flower. And these, the main contenders really were Kew, Cyan Park and Chatsworth. So Joseph Paxton, who was the head gardener at, at Chatsworth, he had originally started out as a gardener at uh, the Royal Horticultural, or the Horticultural Society, as it was then, Horticultural Society's garden at Chiswick. And he had been poached basically by the Duke of Devonshire because he was such an enthusiastic young gardener and exactly what the Duke of Devonshire needed to grow all these exciting new plants that were coming in from all around the world. So he gave him a job up at Chatsworth and he set, set to work almost immediately transforming everything. He was not just a gifted gardener, but he was a gifted engineer and he had a real understanding of, particularly of glass houses and how to maximize the light that comes into a glass house and, and strengthen the structure. And he was a revolutionary. He was, a, he was somebody who I personally class as a, as a hero, really. So Chatsworth actually picked up his water lily. I shouldn't say his water lily, it's really his, the Duke, his boss's water lily. But he picked it up on his birthday on the 3rd of August and he took it back up on the train in a, in a special box. And once he arrived at Chatsworth, he unpacked it and he took it to a greenhouse. Now we don't know, this is something which is still a little bit of a mystery. We don't know exactly which greenhouse it was. He had everything ready for when the plant arrived. He planted it quite quickly. He must have been a bit nervous. It was August, that's quite late in the year really to plant a tender plant like this. So he must have been thinking it would have been better if he'd had the plant earlier on but he obviously did the best he could because it was the only one that was available and although there were concerns that the cooler weather and the falling light would would affect growth no it, it didn't the lily th thrived and it soon produced its first flower buds and there was a huge amount of excitement because of this So the first flower we know was on the 8th of November and it opened in the evening and the flowers were about 30 centimetres across. And I think Paxton was probably, Paxton and all his gardeners would have been there to witness it. I don't think the Duke got there in time for the first bloom. I think after that, he then invited the great and the good from around the UK to see the plant. And so the greenhouse was all specially lit at night and they put a plank across it so that people, if they really wanted to, could get really close to the flower and see it in great detail. And then eventually he came up with the idea of placing his daughter, Annie, who was seven years old, on one of the leaves because 
these leaves are load-bearing. They're so substantial, so buoyant, that they are able to take the weight of a, certainly a child, and it, it, it's argued even um, a fully grown man. So that really was the moment that it was like, Chatsworth and Paxton have won this race. They flowered it, and now there he is placing his daughter on this leaf. The ultimate piece of theatre, really. I suppose that the 8th of November when the first flower opened is, is the key time, but I, th I think if, if I was going to be able to go back through time, I'd try and aim to stay for a, for, a few, <laughs> for a few days so I could see how the drama unfolded. I, I think the story of the cultivation of Victoria is sort of the culmination, almost the, the high point of those times when plants were coming in from around, from around the world. You know, this must have been one of the most challenging plants for the Victorians to get their head around how to grow. You know, just just the sheer size of it, but also the temperatures that it needed and trying to understand its requirements. You know, having these little water wheels to circulate the water and everything. Yeah, I would say it was probably the high point, really. Other people may disagree. They may talk about orchids or some of the remarkable trees that were sent back even later. But I think for sheer spectacle, not much can match the Victoria. It's also, more controversially, a plant sort of caught up in empire and it's a key moment, I think, in not just in horticultural history, but I think in cultural history too. Part of the reason I'm, it's, this is still an interesting story is because we're, we're still learning about these plants. You know, it's only a year ago, or just over a year ago, that Victoria boliviana was described. It's weird that it's the, the largest species and actually it was the very first one encountered and yet it was only described in 2022. So it's a story that's still going on and we there's things we still don't know, you know, we don't know which glass, what the glasshouse was that Paxton first grew, grew this in. It's amazing how quickly history gets lost and confused and we forget things that are sort of taken for granted. So I think it's important to try and uncover the truth before it's too late to see any trace of what went before. Thanks there to Phil Clayton. Phil is the author of a lovely book called Plant for Every Day of the Year, which you can find a link to in our show notes. That's amazing, isn't it, James? That idea of this huge tropical water lily somehow being flowered in Derbyshire in a time before people had electricity, no thermostat, no electric heater, no aluminium glass houses. It's quite quite a bonkers achievement, isn't it? It's absolutely fantastic to hear that. It's got everything, that story. It's got fortune and farce and a global escapade and at the middle of it all this botanical monster. You know, what's it lacking, a story like yes. that? If it was the crown jewels, we would be celebrating it down the ages. But somehow, because it's a plant... Yeah, it's put on a shelf like a dusty history book. And I also just think about what Henneke must have, how he must have perceived this plant when he first saw it. You know, European water lilies, they're quite nice little small things, aren't they? You know, with, with flowers that you could sort of hold in one hand and nice, neat little leaves. They're not sort of giant things a metre across with spines underneath and these 30 centimetre colour-changing flowers that draw in beetles in the night. It must have been must have been mind-blowing. Yeah, you know, it must have seemed to embody everything that was tropical and oversized and outlandish and, and huge and interesting. And I guess you think part of the reason that 
all these plant introductions were so notable for us is that we have such a small native flora. There's uh, what's only 1,500, something like that, of the quickest, most vigorous, quickly spreading plants that made it to Britain before the channel opened. So it's a very limited palette. And then you look at somewhere like China, which has such an enormous flora of like hardy plants that have escaped glaciation and been able to evolve and speciate to a much greater degree. It must have been mind-blowing to suddenly have your palette as a gardener expanded in such a way. It must have been something like 23,000 species in China, which dwarfs our, our native flora. But our native flora is also dwarfed by the number of plants that we've introduced. And over a very short period of time, it must have been a phenomenal experience just to see your your landscape change mm. um, around you so so rapidly and, and with things that could hardly be imagined. I think for us, so much is not new to us anymore. Mm. But when these things arrived, there was no telegraphing ahead to say, this is this no. thing that's on its way. It just arrived yeah. and there it was. You wouldn't have seen a colour photo or you wouldn't have seen it on the internet. It would be completely utterly new. That's right, yeah. For our next story, we're moving on from the Victorian era to a time still within living memory, the 1970s. Nurseryman and gardener Adrian Bloom is here to tell us about a chance discovery that revolutionised Corna sanguinea, a discovery that continues to bring shocking colour to winter at Foggy Bottom, Adrian's famed garden in Norfolk. Corner sanguinea, midwinter fire. Sanguinea itself means bloody, so if you remember that, sanguinea means red. Um, but midwinter fire is uh, one that has stems in winter, particularly striking in that they are red-tipped and orange down to a yellowy base. So it really does look like a fire if you've got several stems together and they just flame away in the distance or close up. And in Foggy Bottom, I've got them in various places. And uh, they really do light up the garden in all sorts of weather on bright days, but particularly on maybe rather dull days. But uh, I've got some not far from the house, but they were initially in the sun, but now they're more in the shade. And that's one thing with anything that's bright colored, normally speaking, you need it in the full sun to get the best color out of it. And those that are in the shade now don't colour up particularly well at all. So there's a tip in there. The main thing really is you need to prune them back fairly severely. If you want to really get a midwinter flame, you need to cut them all back so that you really have that whole surge of growth during the year and all the stems colour at the same level then. And I defy anybody that comes to our gardens in, in February and sees them at that time of the year to to not be overwhelmed and not say the wow word uh, when they see them, and most people do. I look back into Sanguinea because I thought it must have come from North America. And then I saw it was a, a native European plant, and I thought, well, why haven't we heard of it before? And when I looked at it, it was a wild plant, and it grows throughout parts of Britain, and it grows in some of our ancient woodlands but it doesn't have particularly strong colored stems unless you pruned it back. Well, nobody in the wild is gonna prune it back. So it was only grown really mostly for landscape purposes because it was a native 
British plant as well as a native European plant. So I thought I ought to investigate this and see, well, where did this come from? Where did this plant come from that had this bright foliage and bright stems because it was such a good potential garden plant? And I found that originally this had been discovered in a hedge in Holland about 1970, I think, by somebody called Harry Venhorst. And he was um, a landscaper and he was doing somebody's garden and he noticed this uh, stem and one asked the owner if he could take it with him and maybe develop it, maybe it would be something worthwhile, so he did. So many things this happens with in plants, that somebody happened to be in the right place at the right time, but also the right interest to actually dig up a plant and take it. Otherwise we would have, well, I'm sure eventually we probably would have found other sources of similar plants, but maybe many years later. There are people that are hybridizing plants and all credit to them, but uh, some of the best plants have been raised or selected or found by individuals. And I think those to some extent are more interesting. And this is something that I've, because I was very keen on promoting the corners and showing how they could be used in the garden to also follow up the story and find out how they were grown and why, in fact, something had developed from a pretty ordinary plant to something so spectacular. And so that's all, all adds interest to, to me, at least, to the plant. In a way, we have to thank those people and to recognize the people who have found things, even if it's sometime after the event. But at least uh, you are recognizing it. You're not sort of giving credit to somebody who who shouldn't be given it. In other words, somebody claims that they introduced this or they were first to have it, and in fact they weren't. So I just think it is an interesting facet of gardening and horticulture, and it puts a record somewhere too, and that hopefully people in the future will be able to look at the story, and particularly if I've managed to find something which uh, not everybody knew about. That was Adrian Bloom. Adrian's just released a new book called Foggy Bottom, A Garden to Share. You can learn all about it in our show notes. James, do you like Corners Midwinter Fire? It's quite a common thing that sometimes you might see around like supermarket car parks and things. When you see it in, in its pomp, it is a spectacular thing. And it's, it's one of those things you just think it's difficult to believe this wasn't designed for the purpose of looking pretty. Yeah. And especially when you see, as he says, its wild relatives. It, they don't really look like much at all, no, do they? Not, they're not a lot to look yeah. at, really. But um, this thing, it is it is superb. And it, as he says, it does lift your mood. Mm. Plants are good for that, for brightening your day. And I like that it happens. It kind of happens around now, doesn't it? All the leaves fall off, the weather gets really dark and gloomy, and suddenly it's like almost like a bonfire is there in the garden. It's just like, bang, oh, where have these amazing brightly coloured stems come from? It's a dramatic thing, really. One thing that really comes out from that story is the importance of luck sometimes in the history of garden plants. And Adrian, very nobly there, gave uh, credit to the eagle-eyed finder of, of Midwinter Fire. Yeah, he kind of gives credit where credit's due and, and shines a light on one of the little hidden stories of horticulture. But for our next story, we're hoping to do more of the same, really. It's the 125th anniversary of Nest Botanic Gardens, as well as the 75th anniversary of its relationship with the University of Liverpool. 
And to commemorate this milestone, we wanted to shine a light on Arthur Bully, founder of the gardens and an often overlooked figure in the history of horticulture. We chatted with Hugh McAllister, the former assistant director at the gardens, to get the backstory on both Ness and Arthur Bully. I came into Ness in 72, so I've been here over 50 years now. Well, it's the 125th anniversary of Bully starting the gardens. The place was built between 1898 and 1904. He started Bee's Seeds in 1904. He was horrified by the impoverty in the back streets of Liverpool, and he wanted the people there to be able to cheaply beautify their gardens the way he did his garden on the Wirral. He started off the penny packet of seeds so that it was cheap. Uh, so at Ness, he set up his own garden, which he opened to the general public, and he set up bees' seeds with the propagation and seed work all going on there. He bought a piece of what was common ground. We're not quite sure how this came about, because it was a beautiful hillside site overlooking the de-estuary with a good drainage so you don't get late frosts. It's a very peculiar climate on the world because you have we're in the rain shadow of Snowdonia, so we have the western mildness, but we have the sort of south coast, very long growing season that's frost free. So it was a good place to start and a good place for his own private garden to grow a very wide range of plants. Bully, he was a Fabian socialist, so he wanted to do what he could for the ordinary people, particularly in Liverpool. So he was growing mainly herbaceous and annuals with very little interest in trees, which is my interest. The poorer people didn't have big enough gardens to grow trees, so he was thinking of people, even if they only had a tub in the front garden, they could plant annuals or small alpine-type herbaceous. These are things that anyone can grow, as in, you've de described in the RHS podcast on the small gardens in London, which was very appropriate, I thought, and it was bully hundred years ago was trying to do that for the people of Liverpool and nationwide because well, people my age and I'm 80 next year <laughs> will uh, remember bees seeds which was what was sold in Woolworths through the 50s and 60s. Bully, well he, he was a one-off, he did things his own way and didn't care what anybody else said. He was basically a cotton merchant, that was how he made his money and at the same time he also was very interested in plants himself. He appointed a head gardener whom he got from Edinburgh Botanic Gardens with the advice of the Regius Keeper in Edinburgh, the head of the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh. And he and this head gardener from 1913, right up till Bully died in 1942, worked together very well. And Bully, he sponsored two of the most famous early plant collectors, George Forrest and Frank Kingdon Ward. And we feel that he very rarely gets credit for being the sponsor of their first expedition. So they made their names working for him. What he was particularly keen on, I think, were things that grew quickly and produced seed quickly and could be distributed. So it was things like Primula, and I mean, things like Primula booleana, Primula beesiana, Primula forestii. Uh, the one period in this history that I would really enjoy being there 
well really it's a period rather than a single year, would be between about 1906 and say end of 1920s when all the new material was coming in from China by George Forrest, Kingdon Ward, Ludlow and Sheriff and all these well-known plant collectors. So, and that's the interest of seeing all this new stuff that was new species new to science where as I say Ness was growing them so was the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh and Bully was relying on the people in the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh to name the plants in such a way as to commemorate Bully and publicise Bully and his bee seeds and help him sell his plants. Uh, but that would have been a really interesting time at Ness uh, where Mr Bully, working with Joe Hope, his head gardener, was doing this, introducing new things to horticulture, assessing them and then publicising those that were good garden plants. Hugh is a, a fund of fascinating stories. If you get him started talking about Ness, you can be there a long time, but he's a, he's a terrific fund of wonderful stories. And what really comes across, I think, is the founder effect that you get with gardens. So the kind of love of eclecticism and, and diversity that Arthur Bully had, you can still find at Ness today. Mm. And it's as though his personality is reaching down through the years. And Ness is absolutely awash with strange, unusual stuff. And, and Hugh actually is, is, you know, no small part to, to thank for that, of course. And Ness has changed a lot over the years. It, it's owned now by the University of Liverpool. It has been actually it's 75 years since it was taken over by the University of Liverpool. But through all the changes in its past, it maintains this kind of ethos of plants are, are fascinating in and of themselves. Yeah, absolute horticultural mecca and very worth a visit. So James, before we close out the show, I wanted to ask you, what draws you to these plant histories and why should we take time to appreciate them? Well, uh, apart from anything else, they, they are just ripping yarns. They're great, <laughs> they're great stories. And, you know, regardless of what the subject matter is, they, they've got everything. They've got difficult personalities, bravery, you know, in the face of adversity. But all good stories have an object, don't they? You know, Indiana Jones is always chasing some <laughs> some object. You know, Tolkien is about the ring. And at the heart of all these stories is is an object, the plant, the plant in question. This is the, the source of desire and people's energies. And it leads them into some weird and wonderful places. And it's our privilege to be able to look back at those stories and, and tell them. But what about the histories that are being made now? What do you think we should be appreciating now in the present that may only exist in memory in the future? Well, I think that is a fascinating question because you don't understand while you're living it what's going to be relevant yeah. in the future. And one one example that always strikes me is, is elms. Mm. I went to Eastbourne not very long ago and lining some of the streets there are these huge elm trees and it sort of gives you an idea of what the landscape must have been like, um, you know, pre-Dutch elm disease. And, you know, I don't remember it. I'm, you, you won't either. No. But, you know, you look back in these old paintings and things and there they mm -hmm. are, this incredible landscape. And it, people will look back at our time and think, what must it have been like to have lived amongst those plants? And we just don't know what those plants are. You know, oaks. Yeah. Are we going to lose our English oaks? Are they going to be replaced um, by, you know, Quercus ilex or uh, Quercus cerus as, as the climate warms? 
What about the opportunities? What do you think? What do you think are some of the exciting opportunities that are coming next? Well, if you extrapolate from trends, you would say there might be a move towards the great indoors, that people are growing a lot more plants indoors. And perhaps technology is going to help with that. LED light, mm. lights are already revolutionising what we grow. And maybe that's just going to become even more the case as technology helps us to, to grow plants in the apparently inhospitable climate of a, of a living room. Yes, with, with new kind of LED lamps and things, a dark corner can suddenly become a real dazzling, bright space for beautiful houseplants with just the flick of a switch. And yeah, it's an amazing opportunity. Thanks for joining me today, James. I wanted to note that every story we've heard today is from the December issue of The Plant Review. So go and subscribe. You have till the end of November to get a subscription if you'd like a copy of the issue. So from me, Gareth Richards, and me, James Armitage, goodbye and thanks for listening. As we look to the year ahead, start planning your dream garden with the help of the Garden Trellis Company. For more than 30 years, we've been making beautifully crafted joinery for the garden. Our range of top quality products, endorsed by the RHS, includes trellis and slatted panels, fencing, gates, planters, sheds and stores, and all made in our workshop in Essex. Make the most of your outdoor space and get 15% off RHS-endorsed Prestige Joinery products at the Garden Trellis Company when you order online or by phone with code RHSPODCAST. Visit gardentrellis.co.uk to find out more and order.